Hello, I'm Brandon Martini, a commercial pilot and flight instructor. And I'm Carson Vasquez, I'm a private pilot. And you're listening to the Aviation Mentors Podcast, sponsored by Stratus Financial. So buckle up, because the Aviation Mentors are taking off. Welcome back, everybody, to an awesome and amazing episode of the Aviation Mentors Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed that last episode we put out. I sure enjoyed uh, recording it. It was really kind of awesome to talk about. So, And the next topic today that we're going to be talking about is really getting in trouble with the FAA. And it can mean a lot of things. Just getting a warning, having to do a 709 ride with the FAA, or even losing your license or certificate completely. So today, let's get into what can get you into trouble with the FAA and what you can do to stay out of trouble with them. And I highly recommend staying out of trouble with them and doing what the regulations say. And by the way, if you haven't read part 61 or 91, go pull it out and read it tonight. (laughs) All of it. It's great. Yeah, it's a good read. It'll put you to sleep. By the way, Carson, you know how many times I've read that? A lot. It's not that bad. I mean, I just skip the parts that are not applicable to me, like the helicopter stuff. Well, I know some of the gliders. Actually, probably just the helicopter stuff, really. (laughs) All the rest of it, I kind of read and I understand. You keep the hot air balloon part too? Okay, I digress. I skip the lighter than air stuff as well. Okay, no blimp. I really want my blimp rating so bad, so bad. Problem is, there's no one in the US that does blimp ratings. Like, I wanted to somehow start a blimp school. If I could find a blimp for sale, I would start a blimp school. You know how many people would want a blimp rating? I mean, it's just pretty cool. I know like five people that said, oh, yeah, if you had access to a blimp, we could do a blimp rating. I would do a blimp rating. That would be so much fun. I mean, the only real way you can get it now is you work for a company and go get a blimp rating. Like, what is it, Goodyear? Yeah, the Goodyear blimp, or I think, who else? Geico, I think, has one now, and MetLife has one. So you'd have to go work for a big company, and then they internally train you to get a blimp rating. we got to find a blimp, Carson. Okay? If anybody else wants a blimp rating, shoot us an email and let us know that you want a blimp rating, so it just gives me more ammunition to go find a blimp and create a blimp school. <laughs> It'd be so much fun. Now, I digress. Now we're going to get back to talking about the FAA. Sorry. We're going to start talking. I want you to Google right now how much a blimp costs. I've looked before. No one sells them. I want to buy one and I don't even know how much it costs. I mean, it could cost 10,000, it could cost 10 million. I can't find it. No one sells them. So I was actually going through Reddit the other night and I saw that there was a question in the flying one about how many people do you think have fudged the numbers on their logbook? And I was actually pretty shocked. A blimp can cost over $2 million. And if you want a real top notch one, it's about 12 million. Yeah, we could do it. Come on. <laughs> so anyway, I was pretty shocked when I saw that so many people had, quote, heard of someone doing it. It's like their friend did it. So I started to think about just how many ways people can get in trouble with the FAA. So let's get into it. Speaking of that, you know, fudging the numbers in our logbook, the relevant regulation is 14 CFR. It's part 6159. Uh, So go read part 61 about blimps. See, told you. Falsification, reproduction, or altercation of applications, certificates, logbooks, reports, or records. And can't do that. It's a big no-no. And that also applies to falsifying logbook entries for maintenance. Yeah, that's a real big one. You want to make sure that you're not writing in just random things into your logbook. That's wrong on so many different levels. It hurts you, it hurts your future employers, and it hurts public safety. It's absolutely outrageous. I mean, there are people that have done it. I don't know if they've really done it, but I have had my suspicions that there's no way you actually got that many hours and I'd almost want to check. Well, the thing is, I pay so much for every hour of my flight training. And the thought that someone could just put an extra hour in there and save themselves, you know, 250 bucks, this is me off. It's a lot of money. 
It does. It'd make me really irritated too. And the one that really bothers me out of what you just explained is falsifying logbook entries for maintenance, by the way. I've bought and sold a lot of airplanes. Me and Richard have gone out and looked at a lot of airplanes uh, to pre-buy. And I'm typically the ones that go through all the logbook entries while he's doing the like pre-buy of the actual aircraft. And I've gotten, not to toot my horn, but very, very, very good at reading logbooks, looking for airworthiness directives, if they've actually been complied with, things like that. So after I go through my report and I try to figure out if the airplane's even legal to fly, and then I go over to Richard and I say, and Richard of Kavu Aeroservice, he's been on the podcast a couple of times. I go over to Richard and say, hey, am I reading this correct? And nine out of 10 times, he says, yep, you're reading it correct. They actually forgot to do that 40 years ago. And the airplane hasn't been legal for 40 years. <laughs> so I've ran into that before. I've seen straight up people have literally falsified like airworthiness directives that they've said it's complied with and they just put 80 so-and-so has been complied with. Well, how was it complied with? And then we go look at the airplane and we go look at the part on the airplane and no, the part was never replaced. Like 20 years ago, the people have been flying this airplane because they were on the assumption that another maintenance technician signed off the airplane properly. And it hasn't been signed off properly in 20 years, which is pretty insane. So I think that one actually happens more than we'd really like to admit. Yeah, well, there's something like that happening with the logbooks for maintenance. I mean, obviously, it falls into the person that falsifies it. But can the pilot hold any fault for not knowing? I don't think so. It says the owner or operator is responsible for the logbooks. So I guess technically, yes, as a licensed pilot, owning and operating an airplane, you should know and you could probably be at fault. I'd have to talk to like an aviation attorney or something to go through that. Now, whether or not the FAA would prosecute you on something like that, I highly doubt. And if it was 20 or 30 years ago, I highly doubt the FAA would probably care too much to prosecute the person who originally did it unless it caused a really big issue or an accident or something like that. I will say if you do find something like that, it has to be corrected before you go fly that airplane. And if you purposely go fly that airplane and don't correct it. That's a big no-no and you will get in trouble for that. So I don't know, that's kind of my ambiguous answer to a problem that we hope to never be a part of, but it's possible. I would really check people's logbooks and really understand how an AD, I say ADs because those are the most common that are kind of fudged or falsified because ADs are everything's directives for a reason. People die because of them and that's why they're in our logbooks now. So I truly think that that happens quite a bit. I don't know how much it really happens with the logbook stuff for people getting pilot certificates. But if I had to guess, I'm guessing a lot of people doing time building, especially with another pilot, are not doing it properly. I believe that a lot of students are probably not under the hood or they're both logging cross country, PIC time at the same time. Things like that, I believe, are probably happening quite a bit. Every time I've seen a student accidentally doing that, I've made sure to squash that immediately and have them redo those logs. Anytime I've ever seen it and they've got, and they'll lose whatever hours they lost because it weren't real. Luckily, I haven't caught that many times and the schools I've worked with in the past, they're trained really, really well to teach how to log time building hours with other students. So I don't think it's happening as much, but I think that's probably the point where it is. So currently as a student, especially one that's time building, make sure you understand how to log safety pilot time. Go talk to your instructor, go even ask the FAA if you want. It's something that I guarantee a lot of people have logged in correctly. So make sure you're doing that properly. On to another thing that I think that is, is really common for student pilots and actually certificated pilots alike. I think violating airspace is one of the most common ones that us pilots think of and are always afraid of doing. So for example, out of Riverside Airport, where Parson trained at, and I've done a lot of flying, K-R-A-L, 
there's a Charlie shelf right above the departure end of the main runway, 27. And when you take off, if you're in a high performance or a fast airplane, you can get up to 2,700 feet pretty quickly from 800 feet. That's only 2,000 feet. If you're flying at 1,000 foot per minute, I mean, two minutes you're climbing and you're hitting that airspace, right? You need to be real careful, especially over there, especially if you're making a left turn and going over to the practice area. You, in a 172 in the winter, you'll definitely climb in the first eight or nine minutes, you'll climb up to that. And it's really easy to break Charlie airspace there. And I know people that have, and they've gotten phone numbers to call and it's not a good thing. So you want to make sure that you are being very careful with knowing airspace, especially airspace that's above you. I know that visually, as a student, visually figuring out what airspace is, is a little difficult sometimes. But really just, if you look at your trajectory and you kind of think out how far you're going to be. And when you flight plan, you should know how far you'll be and how high you'll be based on math. You can really plan and just know what airspace you're going to be in, or you can potentially be in. And you also, if you're not talking to ATC, which I know a lot of people don't do kind of the middle of the U S and smaller towns, you need to be really careful on where you're flying because you could accidentally go into a Bravo or a Charlie, or more commonly accidentally go into a Delta. And you do not want to break somebody's airspace. That is a big no-no. I can happily say I have never broken somebody's airspace. I'm extremely careful. Carson knocks on wood. I probably should too. And especially because airspace is sometimes changes. I mean, if you don't listen to ATIS, I know that I almost broke airspace in North Carolina. I left first flight and I went over to another airport and I thought it was untowered. And luckily I listened to ATIS because for three months of the year, it was a towered airport. And it was a class Delta airspace for three months of the year, even though it wasn't charted like that. And that was a big eye opener for me. I got real close to doing that one. So got to be real careful about airspace. Make sure you listen to ATIS before you enter it. That's for sure. That's kind of one that's really, really important, even at untowered airports. And being careful like that kind of goes along into the next one, which is reckless or careless operation of an aircraft. And Brandon, can you give me a little bit of a definition on what that could be or what could look like, especially for student pilots and private pilots? Well, it can be as crazy as that YouTuber who jumped out of his airplane with a fire extinguisher strapped to his legs with a parachute on and let his airplane crash in the middle of the woods. I think he got charged with reckless and careless operation of an aircraft. That's for sure. And he lost his pilot certificates and will never fly ever again. That was the most stupid thing you could ever do to make some money on YouTube. I'm actually kind of curious if he actually made any money. I mean, I hope it was worth it for him because that sucks. (laughs) I mean, I could not imagine losing everything and thinking he would get away with it. Just what an idiot. I can't even believe that. But outside of doing something absolutely and totally reckless, you could also buzz your friend's house at 200 feet. You could fly next to an airplane that you have not talked about getting in a formation flight with. You can do aerobatics without being authorized to do so and not being an aerobatic box. You could fly less than 500 feet above the ground in a populated area. There's a lot of things you can do. I mean, those are just a few of them that I can just think of off the top of my head. They could be crazy and stupid or a small and simple mistake. Pretty much anything can turn into reckless or careless operation if you're not careful, which is why it's careless operation. But there is a, another one that kind of tags along into that. And that's not complying with ATC instructions. Yeah, if you're not complying with ATC instructions, then you can get in real big trouble as well. I know that there's been some pilots in the past that have flown into the Bravo or said, I'm going to land here. I think there was a famous one that happened in Vegas last year. We might have even talked about it briefly in one of the episodes. But not complying with ATC instructions get you in a lot of trouble. Now, granted, if it's an emergency situation and you declare an emergency, you can defer from ATC instructions as much as you have to for the safety of you, the aircraft, and the public. 
And by the way, the public needs to be number one on that list. You can't just go land in the middle of a concert because you declared an emergency. That doesn't work. And you go kill a thousand people because you needed to land because there was an emergency. It doesn't say that you can do that. That's for sure. What it does say is you can take reasonable steps to secure yourself and you can go land on a freeway if you deem the freeway not jam-packed or you can land wherever you have to to make sure that you, the airplane, and the public are safe. But not listening to ATC and not doing what they tell you to do, that's a big deal. You need to do what they say, especially because they're out there trying to help you. They're trying to keep you safe, your aircraft safe, and others safe. And by the way, if you're having trouble understanding what they're saying, and you don't understand what they're saying, tell them, I don't understand what you're saying. They're humans. They speak English. Or if you tell them, hey, I'm a student pilot. I'm not quite understanding. Can you please help me? Guess what? They will slow down. They will help you. Even if they sound irritated. As soon as you tell them, I'm a student. I'm not quite understanding. I need help. They are trained to give help. They want to help you. They will do everything they have to do to help you have a successful outcome of that flight. And if you do something wrong and they want to talk to you about it, they'll give you a phone number and you can talk about it on the ground when everybody's nice and safe and sound. And they'll go out of their way to make sure that you're safe. I think I talked about this a long time ago. There was a controller in Long Beach who saved my life. And I don't know who that controller was and gives me goosebumps thinking about it right now. But I told the FAA when I was at Oshkosh six months later after this, I said, whoever that was, if you could figure it out, I don't remember. I think it was like one to one point. Two or one, two, I don't remember, 120.2 or 120.12, something like that in near Long Beach, near Disneyland area. And, and I was going towards Catalina and this controller said, 20 Juliet, dive, 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 or something along those lines. And I listened right away. And if I would not have listened, I would have been in a head on collision with another aircraft. I could see the other airplane, I could see the two people's eyes, the whites of their eyes from my airplane to theirs. And they saved my life. And it was because I complied with them immediately. And I was listening. And I wasn't fiddling around on my phone. And I was doing what I was supposed to be doing as a pilot. And I was looking for traffic, obviously. But guess what? Sometimes you can't see traffic because they're just coming right at you at 120 miles an hour or whatever they were going. And you're right at them. And maybe there's a sun glare or something. Sometimes you can't see the traffic, even though you're looking for it. So comply with ATHC instructions. It's really, really important. And it's really not that hard, especially... If you're new to the industry or, you know, even your first few years, odds are that they've been doing this longer than you have. And there's even a chance that some of them are pilots as well. So they know what you're thinking too. But on to the next one, it's a really simple rule and it's, it's not hard to follow. It's eight hours bottled to throttle. And the rule is you cannot fly within eight hours of drinking or if you're affected or intoxicated by alcohol at all. So really simple, really straightforward. Anything less than that, you are eligible to lose your license, completely lose it, get fined, go to jail. Lots of different things can happen. And aside from the eight-hour rule, there's a, another federal regulation that pilots can never have a blood alcohol content of more than 0.04 when they're flying. I mean, I, I can't imagine how much you'd have to drink in order after eight hours to have 0.04 and be able to fly. Yeah, you'd have to be pretty hammered to still have a 0.04 eight hours later. And by the way, if you still have a 0.04 eight hours later, I guarantee you're going to be hungover. There's no reason why you should be flying at that point. We've talked about it before, and there's an I'm safe checklist, and you need to comply with that every time you go fly. I mean, you need to do that. So when we talk about eight hours bottled throttle, that's kind of the aviation like slang term, right? But you really should be safe. Do your I'm safe checklist. And by the way, 
when you work for an airline, normally it's 12 hours or more. I don't know of any that are more than that, but I've heard in the past that there's even been 24 hour rules or some pilots might even put themselves on 24 hour rules, but it's at least 12 when you work for an airline or 121 operator. That's for sure. And there's another joke that Maddie and I made. It's how many hours weed the speed. And that's just referring how long between ingesting marijuana and flying an airplane. And the answer is these drugs might be legal in the state you're in, but they are not legal for you as a pilot. Like we talked about in our last episode, the states determine if they're legal or not. But as a federal airman, you under federal jurisdiction and these drugs are not legal federally. So you will lose your medical if you test positive for drugs, no matter if they're legal or not. Yeah. So eight hours weed to speed, like Carson just said, I've never heard that term, but that's a interesting one. But the answer is how many hours? Unlimited. You can't. Make sure you don't get screwed over with that. I know that, yeah, like Carson said, it's become legal in a lot of states and it's a recreational drug now for a lot of people. And just don't do it. If you want to become a pilot, you need to abide by the rules. And that's what we do as pilots. We abide by the rules and we abide by rules and regulations. And that's what makes good pilots good pilots. We have to make sure that we comply with that. So just remember the I'm safe checklist. And this counts for a lot of things, especially since we are federally regulated. And there's something else I just thought of. Mushrooms are are legal in Oregon. And like we talked about last week, see what happened to a pilot after he took mushrooms? Yeah. Two days later, he tried to kill a bunch of people and now he's in prison. So we're going to prison. Obviously, stick with the rules. Don't do things you shouldn't do. And it'll keep you out of trouble with the FAA. So another thing that we want to bring up, and then we'll kind of wrap everything up today, that's inadequate pre-flight planning and fuel management. Talk about like the 30 to 45 minute rule for uh, minimum fuel. I actually have a minimum of an hour fuel that I apply for every uh, flight I do, regardless of what type of flight it is. And I've flown with an hour of minimum fuel. I've landed with an hour minimum before. So I'll tell you this, when you've got eight gallons of fuel in a Cessna 172 when you land, that's four gallons in each side. You know what your fuel gauges register on a 1975 airplane? Very, very little. Every time you hit a bump, (laughs) it looks like you have none. It does not feel good to do that. I guarantee it. And when you're trying to test the fuel to see how much you have, seeing four gallons on that little stick is shockingly low. Yeah, and it's a little unnerving. So, I mean, you need to do your pre-flight planning. You need to check all your notams. You need to do your NW craft checklist. And if you don't know what the NW craft checklist is, make sure you check out our other episode on NW craft and I'm safe and do what you're supposed to do, what the FAA wants you to do. That way you don't get stuck getting screwed up. We talk about alternate airports for IFR flight. Guess what? Have alternate airports for VFR flight too. One time I was flying the Icon home pretty much across the country. And I was planning a fuel stop at this one airport. And I was about 30 minutes away from it. And there were no other airports around. And I don't know if I talked about this or not when I had like 40 knot winds or whatever. They were ridiculous in that plane. I, that was insane. It's like a helicopter landing that day. <laughs> I tried to go to this airport. And guess what? Airport said it was out of fuel. It was not reported as a NOTAM, by the way, because I checked before I took off. It was reported on their ATIS. We are out of fuel. Don't land here if you need fuel. And if I did not get fuel there, I was not going to be able to go elsewhere. And luckily in the Icon, I probably could have went and got some 91 octane and put it in, but that would have been a whole trek. I would have had to go to the store and got fuel thing. It would have been a pain. So I ended up diverting like an extra 20, 30 minutes south and went to this really, really windy airport that I had to stay there for like a day and a half or whatever it was. So. Luckily, I had an alternate plan and I had plenty of fuel because I like flying with plenty of fuel. But keep that in mind. You got to you got to do that. I know I said we were, that was going to be our last one, but keep in mind that 
There's some unsafe takeoff and landing practices like landing with someone on the runway or taking off with someone on the runway. These are things that can get you in trouble. It's okay to line up and wait sometimes. Airports do that every once in a while, but make sure that that people are off the runway. I've landed before and then I had somebody else land right after me and they were in a faster airplane and they just came out of nowhere. They did a straight in. They didn't do their left 45 and enter the downwind and do all that stuff. They just came in straight in and right behind me and I wasn't even off the runway yet. And people have landed on the runway with me there. And these are normally little small airports in the middle of, I'll say nowhere, so to speak. But you want to be careful. You don't want to do that. I mean, all of these things can land you in jail or up to a quarter million dollar fine. And I don't know about you, but I don't have a quarter million dollars to blow on a fine. I don't have a quarter million dollars to blow on anything, (laughs) Uh, let alone paying it to the government. They take enough for taxes. They don't need it for me screwing up something as well. And guarantee you're going to go to jail doing some of those things or at the very least lose your pilot certificates. And that's something you don't want to do either. And those kind of penalties, even losing your, your license or your certificate or your medical or having a 709 ride, those are really the penalties if things go right and those kind of flights or mistakes don't hurt anybody. So there's no reason to not be on the good side of the FAA and not do the right thing. You wouldn't have a license or certificate if you didn't do the right thing. So you know it's in you. You know the right way to do things and do things the right way. There's a reason for it. Absolutely. have to agree. Like I said in the beginning of this episode, go read part 61 and part 91, um, especially part 91. 91 tells you all the ways how you can lose your certificate. 61 tells you how to get it, right? So go read part 91 today or tonight. It's great reading material before you go to bed. It'll calm your mind down and put you right to sleep. I guarantee it. But, uh, but it's really a great, great context. And it, and it tells you the rules and regulations that keep us safe and keep our families happy that we're coming home at night and not either dead or in jail. So we, we don't want any of those things. We want to be happy, healthy, safe pilots above all things. So thanks so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed talking about this topic. And if you'd like to reach out to either one of us, you can reach me. It's Brandon at AviationMentors.com. Or for Carson, it's Carson at AviationMentors.com. And as a wrap up for the day, remember, here to guide you in your aviation journey. So fly safe and enjoy the ride.